You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Welcome to the Business Unusual Podcast. My name is Gokejo Mamabolo. Um, today, I am absolutely delighted <laughs> to be joined by Joylin Kirui. Um, she's the Senior Cloud Security Advocate at Microsoft. Um, hi, Joylin. Um, I'm really excited to be chatting to you. You know, you're one of the top 50 uh, women in cybersecurity. You're a finalist for Hacker of the Year. So um, perhaps I want to, you know, just get to know a little bit more about you. You know, what's your story? Where you come from? How did you get into the cybersecurity space? And, you know, what made you get into, you know, IT? I'm going to say IT, um, but obviously you're far more specialized in that. So, you know, how did you get to this point? How did you become the person you are today? So it's a funny story and a very long one as well. Go ahead. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, so where did it begin? Um, actually, I studied computer all the way from primary school. I know maybe from the audience, um, maybe you call it grade grade one. Grade I know we call it we call it primary school here in South Africa. <laughs> yes, yes. We, we yes. also call it primary school. So uh, I studied way back in primary school. I remember my parents bought our first desktop uh, like when I was like around nine years. Mm-hmm. So at that time, uh, I became very curious. I remember even for my for my parents' uh, birthday, my brother and I used to, you know, just design birthday cards and print it out. Uh, at least you were fortunate enough to have a printer and also So we were trying to just play around with the different features. Um, in the computer, and then it reached a point where we were trying to also break down the whole computer and put it back together. So oh, wow. um, I, I think I can say it started from maybe my brother, because he was more curious in terms of, you know, uh, computer stuff. So that's when I also created the uh, curiosity uh, around computers. And when I went to high school as well, I did uh, a computer as well. And I think, so it just flowed, <laughs> it just flowed. And um, yes, I joined the university and did computer science. Uh, I was in uh, USIU Africa. I don't okay. know if you know of it, but yes, yes it's yes, a very yes. good, it's a wonderful university. So uh, when I was in uh, USIU, I mainly focused on software development. So I developed so many systems and that's what I thought I would do throughout. <laughs> that was my passion. Mm-hmm. But I remember one time, uh, one of my systems actually got hacked. Uh, so that's when I was like, okay, so uh, what should I do to build more secure products? Mm-hmm. So that's when uh, the school at the time was offering uh, this beginner certification. Uh, it's called uh, Certified Ethical Hacker. So mm-hmm. I just joined it. Um, it, was, uh, it was held during the weekend. So um, I, I, I do my normal classes during the weekday and CH in the weekends. And also, as well as that, just doing a lot of research around secure coding. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, on YouTube, there is a lot of resources on YouTube. And just Googling as well. Google um, is a skill that everyone should have. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so that's how I ended up just, you know, trying to get into cybersecurity in order to build more secure products. So I actually say when you're building a product or you're building a system uh, and you don't have security incorporated in your system, it's like you build a very beautiful house and you leave it without doors and you leave it without windows just for everyone to enter and take everything, all your valuables. So that's when I developed the passion of, you know, secure coding. And uh, uh, when I graduated, I sort of, Actually, didn't apply. I was called, I was headhunted into a, into the top company in, in Kenya at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, it still, it still is the top company in Kenya. 
it's called Safaricom, where I joined as an information systems auditor. Hmm. And uh, after that, I joined the cybersecurity department um, as a SOC analyst and then as an assurance officer. So an assurance officer is uh, basically an ethical hacker where you're involved in projects from the from the onset all the way until the project goes live, whereby hmm. you try and emulate everything a hacker would do to break down a system. So it's, it's very interesting. You get to interact with a lot of systems. So if you think of anything IoT, if you think of anything infrastructure, if you think of anything database, I have tried to hack them and I have, okay, I have managed to hack most of them. <laughs> so um, in terms of the, la- the learning uh, landscape, I have managed to learn a lot of um, the ecosystem in terms of technology um, with the aim of breaking them. Mm-hmm. and just um, showing the vulnerabilities that are, are in those systems. So that's how I actually got into cybersecurity. Uh, it was it was not like I wanted to, but it, it just happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so funny yeah. enough, uh, in terms of uh, my passion for software development, now is I just work with developers in terms of training them on secure coding, and also not just developers, but also organizations and also uh, users, uh, just to make them aware of cybersecurity, how to keep themselves safe. Uh, I recently, I joined Microsoft last year as a senior cloud security advocate, uh, where I'm mainly working as well with communities in terms of also just talking about security DevSecOps, and it's, it's quite interesting. Hmm. So could, could you perhaps tell us a little bit more about your role? Because, um, you know, you have a, a very interesting title. So to a, I'm going to call myself a layman, um, you know, <laughs> a senior cloud security advocate. You know, uh, we, we do most of our work on, you know, our work is cloud-based, you know, so I'm a writer. So, so could you perhaps tell us a little bit about um, your role at Microsoft? You know, what is your role as a senior cloud security advocate involved? You know, what are you doing on the day-to-day um, yeah, what what is your role involved? Yes, um, so, uh, okay, fortunately or unfortunately, <laughs> it's nothing to do with law. Some people think, okay, so you're an advocate. Uh, <laughs> advocate of the high court? <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, it just means um, to advocate for cloud security. And um, whereby I'm working with product teams as well from, uh, from Microsoft, just to bring um, all those cool uh, features that are, uh, that are being brought out from Microsoft to the community, and also getting uh, the commu- community feedback as well, just to build better products. Um, so at least Microsoft can build better products. Um, and also as well, I work in, in terms of empowering. My main topic of discussion is always DevSecOps. So uh, just working with developers in terms of helping them to code securely. And uh, so that's what I mainly do. So you'll find me in conferences, you'll find me blogging, you'll find me um, just anywhere developers are. I work mainly with communities. And uh, that's why I'm even... Uh, I do a lot of mentoring as well, just to make uh, more and more people to be more aware of or be more cyber safe as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I'd like to think of myself as uh, sort of developer relations, developer advocacy um, mm-hmm. in a way, but cooler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I noticed in, um, you, you gave a, a training session um, about DevSecOps, and um, obviously that was my first kind of introduction to it. So perhaps, you know, for, for people who don't necessarily understand or know what DevSecOps is, could you, could you give us the, the, a quick crash course? Sure. Um, so 
Again, um, the way we used to work before, um, before automation and whatnot, uh, we used to have the developers create their, the softwares, mm -hmm. and then after it's created, it goes to the security teams, and the security teams, they end up testing uh, the systems and giving the developers the issues. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, you'll find that uh, whatever the developers are building on was not secure, and mm -hmm. you'll need probably an upgrade or, or, or a framework or of some of a particular dependency. And mm -hmm. then in most cases, you find the, the developers complaining that um, if they upgrade, the system won't work. <laughs> so <laughs> meaning, that, uh, meaning that we'll have a lot of delays to deliver this particular system to production. Mm -hmm. Because uh, if, they, if you insist that they have to upgrade, it means now redesigning and doing a whole new architecture and uh, putting in place all the recommendations from the security team. And then again, when you go to the ops team, um, in most cases, you find that they, you are not even incorporating security. Um, so, um, yes. So you find that developers, they want to push as many changes as much as possible in terms of a product. And the operations team, they want to maintain the system. They want to maintain the infrastructure. So at least uh, it remains, you know, um, usable. It remains, um, you know, everyone can be, use the particular um, resource. So um, DevSecOps is whereby we want to shift security left. It's more mm -hmm. of a culture shift and whereby we want to train developers to have a security first mindset whenever mm -hmm. they're developing. So we want to empower them whenever they're developing even from the endpoint. Um, they're even doing um, some security scans from their IDE before mm -hmm. even pushing their code to a particular repository. So, uh, so at least they can be able to identify the issues as early as possible because we find that uh, if you identify an issue later on in the software development life cycle, it's more expensive. It's 64 times more expensive to identify an issue in production rather than fixing it during the software development life cycle. So we're trying to even um, incorporate security as early as possible, but not only as early as possible, but throughout the software development life cycle. Okay, and so sorry, go ahead. Yes, I think that that's a quick crash course. Uh, but uh, so this is where we look at actually every component within uh, the software development lifecycle. Hmm. Uh, we're looking at dependencies within your code. If they're vulnerable, uh, we tell you that you need to upgrade, so at least you get to know them from your IDE. Mm -hmm. uh, we're also looking at your source code. Uh, if it has security vulnerabilities, we give you they give you uh, uh, recommendations for you to fix the code. It also we look at infrastructure as code to see if your infrastructure is actually as secure as possible. Because mm -hmm. we usually say um, we have to be lucky almost throughout. Uh, a hacker has to be lucky only once in order for them <laughs> to protect the system and gain access and you know uh, have like a lot of financial implications. Yeah. So we have to do something called security index, where we have to test and put as many security features as possible to prevent this hacker from being successful. Mm. So that's why we want to do like a security first mindset and identify these issues as early as possible and deploy security fixes throughout. Okay, that's interesting. It's 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 interesting because um obviously like I'm on a laptop right now. I have my phone next to me like. Whenever I'm on these devices, I never necessarily think about the, the development that goes into, you know, we could speak of, but, you know, like, you know, these messaging apps and the, the encryption software, all that, there's security involved in that. Um, and you're, you're one of the speakers um, at the upcoming Africa Tech Week conference. 
So, you know, perhaps let's link this to Africa. So do you find that on the continent there are, so how are people relating to cybersecurity on the planet, on the continent? So like, what is the, what does the landscape look like? Are we, as an, as the continent, and I'm generalizing, you know, as people in the African continent, the businesses um, and the people, are we, are we adopting the, the, the sort of practices you just mentioned now? So like, is DevSecOps, is it taking off in Africa and cybersecurity in general? Or do you find that companies are more aware now of, you know, uh, threats to their networks? Because, you know, here in South Africa, we recently were um, named as, I think, the sixth, we have the sixth highest rate of, of cybercrime um, in the world. You know, so it's something that's really relevant to South Africans, but, you know, it somewhat feels like it's not necessarily a topic of conversation. So as someone who's within the industry and, you know, who has a kind of a line of sight of the entire continent, um, what is the landscape like? How are people reacting? Are we, are we doing enough? Do we care enough about cybersecurity? Unfortunately, we don't care enough. Most of us just, you know, you, you, your particular role, you're given a particular role and you do what is expected of you, not mm. going above and beyond trying to see how you can build more secure products. So mm. unfortunately, from the interactions that I've had, um, developers are not really security aware. Mm. So that's why we have to do a lot of advocacy in terms of also training them and, uh, you know, just giving them that culture shift, that mindset of security. Uh, in terms of companies, right now we're seeing more and more companies being cyber aware. The, so um, but it has to be very intentional in terms of even governments. Because like here in Kenya, um, they ordered like for any financial institution, um, they have to have security professional. And you also have like to have a data protection officer. So uh, at that time, uh, I think that was like four years ago. Uh, so at last, that time there was a drive of, you know, we really want security professionals. So in order to meet a particular, in order for them to be compliant. Mm. But you see, um, we don't have these um, this regulations like throughout Africa. We don't have like, um, especially small companies or uh, small companies or small startups. Um, they just have the normal dev team, um, the developers, they just have a QA person. They just have the project lead. Most of them don't have, uh, they don't see the need of a security professional. But um, that's why we think even if you're a startup, you really need a security professional throughout, um, throughout not only ad hoc or uh, on mid basis. So um, that's why we're trying to empower more and more companies and more and more uh, developers as well to be more security conscious. But as of now, we are not yet there for sure. So are you finding more success in speaking to businesses or to developers directly? I'm finding more success speaking to developers directly mm. <laughs> because they're the ones who actually go and do the work. Mm. They don't actually care about their, their code because you should, mm. uh, you should tell them actually the first line of defense because if they, and they know their code much better. Mm. They know what they were thinking when they were coding this, when they were incorporating this particular function and they were doing this. So they know that they, they were actually doing something wrong. At the back of their mind, they know that it is just a workaround. So mm. it, it makes more sense to speak directly to the developers and make them more aware. Because now they'll even talk to their uh, companies and say that, oh, by the way, um, from, this particular function, from this particular forum, I learned about the secure coding best practices um, I think it would be best. So at least they can also empower their companies to incorporate some of those 
best practices or even security infrastructure that's needed, like mm. uh, web application firewalls, uh, data loss prevention, um, a lot of more security infrastructure to um, systems mm. to be incorporated, yeah. Okay, so what are the major trends right now in your sector? So in the cybersecurity space, like what are the, so obviously we mentioned DevSecOps and that's, you, like, as you mentioned, you said it's a cultural shift. So, you know, are there other cultural shifts happening within the space? Um, within uh, DevSecOps? Well, or in cybersecurity in general. So um, in cybersecurity, not really. I usually find um, the more time changes, the more things remain the same because um, mm. as per the CIA triad, um, all we want to maintain is the confidentiality, integrity and availability of data and of the system. So uh, whatever system or whatever new system is developed, it's all based on the CIA, just to make sure that data is secure, integrity of the of the information remains, availability of the data is always there. So uh, yes, we have so many new new tools, so many encryption um, tools, so many, um, we have so many other things, but they just build on maintaining the integrity of the data and the confidentiality and the availability of the data. And yeah. yeah. So, so the, the data that you know that um, companies are working with, businesses are working with, and uh, you know, so in South Africa recently we had the the Poppy Act, um, the Protection of, of Private Information Act, um, which kind of tries to address the issue of you know, so even when I'm on my phone and I'm on Twitter, for example, you know, every time I'm scrolling or I click on something, I'm creating data. And I'm not, I'm not necessarily seeing the kind of the, the visualization of the data, you know, I'm not, but like it, it is out there and it's being used. So do you think that when it comes to securing people's data, so is the, is the onus more on developers or the businesses that are gathering the data? So should developers be more aware of how they build systems that collect data or should the businesses that are, you know, employing the developers to create these systems should they are they the ones with the ultimate responsibility so like who what's what's the developer's role in this and what's the business's role in you know in protecting people's data it is it is up to the business because uh when when you when your customer data get leaked gets leaked it's actually your company name that's uh that's published or is at fault yeah it's not mm -hmm. a particular uh developer's name isn't it so mm -hmm. the business has to enforce some measures or best practices that the developers have to enforce. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've seen most um, companies, um, they don't do like a lot, but they do the minimum in terms of what developers should enforce. So you'll find that they have like a particular checklist of things that are supposed to be met um, in order to be compliant within the business. But it's usually not a lot in terms of getting into details in terms of how to actually um, code securely. But um, they usually say nowadays, um, yeah, it's, it's someone's responsibility, the developer's responsibility to code uh, securely, but if the business name um, at risk, uh, if, 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 this, if the system is compromised. So yes, the business has to take initiative in terms of putting in measures or policies, security policies that have to be met by the whole team, not only the developers, but also users, because um, maybe even through like a phishing attack, um, through an email, you never know, so something can be compromised within your network. 
So, um, so it's all about just empowering every single person within your within your company, within your organization, not just the developers. Mm-hmm. But also the developers, they also have to be empowered. So um, even if they'll be taking on more tasks in terms of um, doing some QA tasks, in terms of doing some security tasks, yes, um, they need to identify that they're actually the first line of defense. What they do really matters because they also don't want at the end of the day um, a system is compromised and then they, the business starts looking at them. Who was developing this? So in DevSecOps, we're trying to remove that that blame game um, because we've seen previously a toxic culture whereby if something is compromised then they're like who actually used bill 64 you know they're like <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so we're trying to identify these issues as early as possible so at least if the company that actually embraces all these um, if, if there's something that compromised they actually embrace that and they actually check throughout their other systems if this if these are the same vulnerability throughout the other systems mm, mm, mm. so so the 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 vulnerabilities teach them something um, yes. they, they, they learn something because um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Nassim Nicholas Talib um, mm-hmm. so he's a, he's a philosopher um, and he, he mainly works in, in and with, with to do with I'm going to say probability, but he speaks a lot about risk. And, um, you know, when I, when I think about cybersecurity and what you, you've been speaking about, and you just said now the developers are the, are the first line of defense, um, you know, would you say that developers have to think about risks that they haven't necessarily thought about? Um, so, for example, we had a, um, Bob Mwester, and we had Bob Mwester on our podcast recently. He's also a speaker at Africa Tech Week. So he says that, and he's talking generally, but he says you should, find out what you don't know. Um, you don't know, you don't know it. And um, Nassim Nicholas Taleb says a similar thing. Um, mm-hmm. he said, the, the things that are most dangerous, because so he, he works mainly in trading. So he says the biggest risks when you are trading are the kind of the ones that you don't know about. So you shouldn't be worried about, you know, losing a little bit here and there. What you should be worried about is that one major bad decision that ruins everything. So I can, I can imagine in cybersecurity, it's a similar thing, you know, like, like you, you just made, a, I think, the perfect analogy, you know, for someone who's working to cre- develop the system, um, you need to be lucky throughout the process. But, you know, a hacker just needs that one opportunity, you know, um, to do it. So I'm, I'm wondering then about the ethics. Um, so maybe let's start with, so you were a finalist for Hacker of the Year. So it's interesting. So in the popular imagination, we think hackers, we think someone in their room, in a dark room, you know, with just a computer screen and, you know, they're doing nefarious things, you know. So I think you're, you're on this. I should probably have worn my hoodie and, <laughs> <laughs> and you know, have the, the screen on you. So I'm wondering, you know, where, where, do the, where do the ethics fit in? So, so firstly, maybe explain to us um, how a hacker works for a company like Microsoft. So how can someone working for Microsoft be called a hacker? <laughs> Ethical hacker. Ethical <laughs> hacker. So, yes. So we have black hats. So black hats are the ones who actually compromise systems for their own gain. So it can be just to um, uh, to discredit that company, yeah, to say that um, their system is actually vulnerable. It can be for financial gain. Um, maybe they steal the data and sell it. So it, it can be for many other issues, many other reasons for their own personal gain. Yeah. Mm. But for us, uh, white hats, uh, we are given permission by companies to actually compromise and um, give the vulnerabilities to them. 
Mm. So, uh, but it reaches to a particular extent. If a system is actually live, and mm-hmm. you actually identify a particular vulnerability that would break that system or, or like make it, uh, you know, um, uh, not usable, uh, we there's actually a line that we don't cross. So mm. we we tell them that yeah, this system is actually vulnerable to this um, critical vulnerability, can be like a remote code execution vulnerability. And uh, if if I compromise this, I'll be able to compromise actual customer data. Oh wow! Uh, but if if they give you the go ahead to actually try and uh, and uh, maybe try and break the system, maybe it's, uh, uh, at a time when traffic is low. So yeah, you can do maybe if it's uh, on the weekend at maybe 11 p.m. when traffic is low and try to compromise it. But in most cases, they say just do it to a particular level where you're not actually compromising the functionality of the system and the availability of the data. Mm. So uh, yeah, so that's where in most cases you have to sign like an NDA. You have to sign a contract whereby you're actually given permission. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise you end up being in problem. Yeah. Mm. Uh, but I'm seeing more and more companies as well having bug bounty programs uh, in Africa. So mm. by bug bounty program, we have um, like for Microsoft, we have a bug bounty program uh, whereby if you find any issues. Uh, with the Microsoft um, system, you can tell them, uh, you can tell um, the, the issue uh, in detail, and then you're given, you're given money for that, yeah? You're given mm-hmm. money as for the criticality of that particular issue. So uh, we also have very many other companies in, in, in Africa, not, not as many, because as of now, I think it's just maybe around maybe 10, Mm-hmm. We are not yet there because uh, I think I would challenge more and more companies. If you have systems um, in, in production, just try and put it up uh, on a bug bounty program like HackerOne, BugCrowd. Uh, there are many others. Um, so at least we do responsible disclosure. So we usually say that uh, when a hacker finds that vulnerability and they give you that issue, it's called responsible uh, disclosure. And uh, in most cases, when you're enrolled in those bug bounty programs, you have to sign things, you have to be compliant. So at least um, uh, you don't cross a particular line because you're actually given a permission to um, to compromise those systems. Mm. So uh, that's the difference. Uh, it's more of a moral thing whereby mm. I'm just doing this for good while mm. black hats are doing it for bad. <laughs> mm. yeah. And you know, I'll assume the black hats or when, when you're speaking about protecting um, consumers' data, um, obviously, like consumers' data is something that a black hat would be targeting, um, you know. So how, do, how does a company build trust with their customers? So I, as a customer of, you know, whatever product or service that I'm using, how do I know that when I, say, fill in an application form or when I order something online and I'm filling in my address and then maybe they want my ID number and all this, like, how do companies ensure, like, because we're in a different time now. So perhaps 20 years ago, if I was trying to buy something, the person I'm buying from probably won't be able to gather that much information about me. Because if I walk into a store, maybe you can see what I look like, how I'm dressed, etc. But that data, it isn't necessarily like, you know, now we can, when I'm shopping, I'm creating data. So now how do companies build trust? How, do, how does a company let people know that your info is safe with us? Yeah. You, you you actually don't know like mm. fully. 
because we've seen scenarios where companies say that yes, you can use this chat pro platform. It's uh, end-to-end encrypted. It's <laughs> you've seen that, yeah. We have two. Yes. We have like um, two ways to sell enabled. We have a data encrypted address. Data um, transmission is actually encrypted. But in actual sense, so there's a difference between you know marketing and PR and what's actually on the ground. <laughs> so uh, in most cases, you'll find companies just say, yes, uh, we have encrypted your data. But yeah, and then now you see that uh, some people are saying as in, um, you're chatting to someone uh, about this particular sports shoe and then out of nowhere, you're seeing that sports shoe everywhere. You're going to Google, it's there. You're going to like, <laughs> so Instagram is there. You're going yeah. to there. Like, <laughs> and then you're wondering, okay, wasn't this like a private chat? So was it meant to be encrypted or, you know? So um, in most cases, I think you need to do your due diligence as well. If you have the capability to, um, to, to do reverse engineering of particular systems, if you're really keen on security, you can try and uh, see if you can actually compromise it. And also do, uh, because we have a huge community of uh, security researchers as well. Just mm-hmm. try and do a lot of uh, research as well and see what others have done in that particular system. If it's a particular like platform or firmware uh, for a particular device that you want to buy. So you can also do a lot of research because you have like um, um, platforms like um, ExploitDB, uh, whereby people have given um, exploits for particular firmware, for particular um, systems or applications. And then you just do your due diligence and see, okay, so um, what level of trust has been enabled for this particular system. But in most cases, um, uh, most companies, they need to be compliant in terms of having um, like third-party auditing done. So in most cases, yes, um, it's done and then it's it's known that, yes, this one has been accredited by this particular uh, maybe uh, audit firm. Yeah. But in most cases, they don't publish the findings. Yeah. Mm. But if you want to actually, if you're really curious to see if actually my data is actually encrypted, try and do some bit of reverse engineering for your own self, but uh, not to the extent of actually compromising systems or, you know. Um, so, so it, don't, don't so, get caught saying that I told you to do reverse engineering. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting that you, um, you mentioned the fact that, you know, it's, it's somewhat on the consumers themselves, because often when we're talking about data and data sharing, because as much as I can say that, you know, when, I, when I'm using the internet and I'm buying some particular product. So it's interesting that one that you mentioned that sometimes you'll be having a conversation and then you get an ad. Um, so, you know, I work here at Topco Media. Um, the other day, my, you know, my, I was having a conversation with my friend and we had an event and I was mentioning that to him. And a few days later, he sends me a message with um, an ad from Instagram from Topco Media. You know, and he'd never gotten a Topco Media ad before. You know, and it, it's interesting that I would put... You know, in some senses, and this is this gets me onto like the ethics, you know, in some senses, there's a reason why companies are collecting data. And there's a reason why I, as a consumer, I'm willing to give that data. Um, so do you, do you think then that we're at a space where now where it's, it should be more on the businesses necessarily um, to consider how they use data or 
you know, should it be both sides? Should we should we be more in conversation with each other as as you know the business community and as consumers? Should we be talking more about what data is important and how data should be used? Should we be giving that much data? So, like, where does the the conversation start? Is there a point where business and communities can meet to discuss data sharing? That's an interesting one. Um, so if it were up to me, I wouldn't share any data. But in order for most of these businesses to survive, they actually have to, you know, to sell data. Mm-hmm. So in most cases, they do data anonymization. So at least it doesn't, uh, it doesn't direct or it doesn't link to a particular user. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, at least that's where we talk about PIA data, because in such a case, we, we don't want uh, personal identifiable information to be sent out or leaked um, to other or sold to other companies. So uh, it's up to the business to make sure that uh, if they have to share data, as in, in terms of statistics, in terms of dashboards, in terms of um, to advance their, their business, um, they anonymize the data. So at least it doesn't leak any PII data and doesn't direct back to a particular user. Because in such a case, you're not compliant to um, um, data privacy like uh, for GDPR. I know for most com- most countries, they have their own uh, data protection or uh, um, law um, that's enforced. So um, I know most of them are hand in hand with GDPR. So you have to make sure at least whichever uh, Business, if you're, if you're a business, make sure that you're compliant and you're protecting your customers' data. The fine is really hefty in terms of if you're actually found to be um, disclosing customer data, customer information, uh, you actually find a lot of money. I think for GDPR, it should be like 6% or what? 6% of your, of your worth. Mm-hmm. It's really a lot of money. Mm, mm, mm. Yes. I'm thinking now from somewhat from the tech perspective, like as a as a as a tech company. Um, so we um another person on our podcast, um, Stafford Macy. So he was the he's the former CEO of Google South Africa. So he um in our in, in the conversation he had with our CEO Ralph Fletcher, he mentioned and he, he took the the big example of, of of the developments in tech right now. So we're at a we're at an interesting point in how technology is affecting our lives as humans, you know, and he, he said that the, the gap that he notices is that perhaps more tech companies need people in the room who understand humans, you know, so a developer obviously really understands, you know, coding and kind of how systems work, you know, but, you know, perhaps someone from, you know, maybe a, a sociologist, for example, could maybe better understand how when you collect data and then use it for a particular purpose, whether that be marketing or et cetera, um, you know, can affect. So do you think um, it, it'll be worth it for more tech companies to have, you know, um, certain people in the room who can, when the developers are getting a little too ahead of themselves, getting really excited about a particular thing to be to say, hey, how is this going to affect our consumers or potential consumers? Yes, um, definitely. Like um, for Microsoft, we have those people. Um, so they're not really like tech people, but they work in uh, in tech products. So you, you find, uh, I know a couple of people who did sociology, who did, you know, psychology as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so they bring that human aspect into a product. 
So mm-hmm. it's not only in terms of user interface and user ex- experience. So just also in terms of you know the psychology around what your product is actually doing. Because um, yeah, I would be really pissed if, if I'm using a particular product and then I'm like. Okay, so is my data so my data was actually sold. So as in uh, that would bring you know bad bad feelings towards a particular company. Yeah? So yes, you need you need this kind of people uh, who are who actually know the human emotions, the human how the human behavior actually is. You 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 one of our speakers at Africa Tech Week. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm really excited to to hear you speak. Um, you know. Um, so I, I just wanted to kind of find out from you, why do you think it's important to attend a conference like Africa Tech Week? So why does it matter? Why doesn't it? So <laughs> uh, one thing, um, so it's actually not my first time um, like for Africa Tech Week because I, I actually get to learn from various, um, from various speakers, learn their perspectives, learn how um, the tech space is actually moving towards a particular trajectory, and maybe just compare what you're actually doing and seeing if, if you're in the right position where you can do better. So it's just more of learning and having a growth mindset, how you can better your business, better yourself as a developer, Better, better yourself as a as a as an ops person, as a DevOps person, as a as a database administrator, as a cloud practitioner. So, because um, the topic is actually quite broad, and mm. you get to learn uh, a lot of things from the sessions. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also, that- I, I really I was telling you I wish it was in person because uh, in terms of networking. <laughs> yes. Because, yeah. Um, in terms of just. I'm meeting these guys, uh, exchanging, you know, exchanging physical cards. I have a stack of uh, of business cards here, um, which were printed before COVID. And then I'm like, now what should I do? Should I, <laughs> how should I use them now? Um, Nail one of them to me. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we need we need more in-person sessions. So at least that one-on-one discussion with the various um, with the various guys who are actually attending. Uh, you get to actually gain a lot, not mm. only from the speakers but also from the other attendees. Uh, mm. Yeah, because mm. because that you know, considering that, um, well, I, I don't know if you agree, but we're perhaps in the a new dawn for tech in Africa. Um, so it is an opportunity to connect with you know people like yourself who are, I would say, at the cutting edge of what's happening on the continent in terms of you know, and obviously you work for an international company, so. What you're doing is you're not, you, you're in Africa, you're in Kenya right now, but you're internationally facing. You know, so do, do you think Africa Tech Week is also a good opportunity for for people on the international, uh, you know, our international um, tech enthusiasts? You know, whether they're you know the just the guy at home on his computer, or you know the woman who's heading up a major tech company. Like, do you think that there's an opportunity for people to connect from different perspectives? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And you even find not just internationally, but even locally, like in South Africa, you mm. find that uh, you are looking for a particular solution mm. for a particular product that you have. And actually another company within South Africa is actually deployed or has produced a product to fix that particular issue. Mm. So it's, it's more, um, you know, uh, learning from the platform and de- trying to see how you can fix your own problems and through networking. Yeah. 
through hearing what others have done and also inquiring. So what, what I like as well in terms of conferences, uh, if you have a particular issue, you ask mm. it in the chat functionality and it gets answered. So mm. at least get answers for your particular issues. And uh, in most cases, I've seen it being you know quite beneficial. And if it's not answered, you follow up um, after that because at least you've known that there's this particular person who's doing something in that area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I really wish we could, you know, chat a little bit more, but I, I feel much better knowing that, you know, you're coming to Africa Tech Week and you're excited to be there. So I will definitely be able to hear more from you and so will our audience. So Joylan, I just want to say thank you for the conversation. Um, you know, I, I feel like how your mentees and trainees must feel, you know, I feel like you've given me a lot of knowledge and quite a few things to think about. Uh, thank you. Um, actually, most of my mentees, I, I get very many um, every week. So some of them, even book sessions for strategies, they're not paying me. <laughs> so they're like, uh, they're like uh, so what security policies should we do? And then because you, you've opened up your calendar, so you just advise them how best to do it. And uh, it's it's quite interesting because even when you're talking to mentor, mentees, um, you get to learn a lot from them as well. So that's what I, I really like enjoying. Uh, I, I enjoy that as well. Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to learn more from you at Africa Tech Week. Excited to be there. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, Joylin. Thank you so much for joining. And I'll, I will definitely see you soon. Thank you.